Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by old friend and colleague and fellow birthday celebrator, um, Stephen Knott, who is the author of a new book, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. This was published in 2022 by the University Press of Kansas. And it is a book about John F. Kennedy, but it's also a book about Steve's relationship to the presidency and Kennedy in particular. So it is a kind of um, biography, autobiography put together, I think. Um, and I very much enjoyed reading it. It's a lovely, lovely book. Um, so welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast, Steve. And uh, can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project? Well, thank, thank you, Lily. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You're a good friend. And uh, yes, we do share a birthday, June 14th, uh, Flag Day. And maybe that's where my interest in all things American began. Um, So this book about President Kennedy, as you mentioned, does have a real sort of uh, personal angle to it. My first memory as a human being is of the fear on my parents' faces during the Cuban Missile Crisis. My brother and I were wrestling on on the floor in front of this grainy black and white television. And there was a man speaking on the television who I later figured out was President Kennedy. And my president, uh, my parents were trying to quiet us down so they could listen to the president. And I could see just the look of fear, the look of concern on their faces. That's my earliest memory. And my second earliest memory is of the assassination of President Kennedy coming home from school, seeing my mother crying in front of that same grainy black and white TV. And so I have to add to it, I grew up in Massachusetts in a Kennedy worshiping family, and I use that term with some precision. My mother really did worship President Kennedy. She was Irish Catholic. He, of course, was as well. And when Kennedy broke that glass ceiling, uh, she just grew to revere him in terms of being the first Catholic president. 
So that was the atmosphere I grew up in. I sort of absorbed that worship myself. And so my first job out of college was at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. And by the way, my mother could not have been more thrilled with that. It was like I'd been asked to be Pope. Um, so that was quite a highlight for her. And, you know, that was the milieu in which I grew up. Over time, my attitude towards President Kennedy and the entire family began to change and actually move in a quite negative direction. Over the decades, I've always thought about writing this book and my own shifting views towards this presidency. And I finally got around to doing that in the last three years. And, um, you know, I have to say, with all humility, I'm quite proud of the book. And it is a beautiful book on, on a number of levels. And it's enlightening about the Kennedy administration, but not only the Kennedy administration, you really, you really um, work hard to position an understanding of Kennedy as president within our understanding of the presidency, um, which obviously has been some of your life's work in general. Um, so I, I can see how this book followed the lost soul of the American presidency. Um, but could you talk a little bit about how your evolving understanding or thinking about JFK helped you to think about the American presidency? Yeah, terrific question. So I grew up assuming that the sort of Kennedy model, and, and I'm talking about the Kennedy model as put forward by people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and Ted Sorensen, was the model presidency. Uh, in other words, this notion that the president could be as big a man or as big a person as he eventually she wants it to be. And that struck a chord, a very positive chord with me. Over time, uh, partly due to, I think, just the kind of match, normal sort of maturation and also my education, particularly at Boston College that you and I share. Um, I did begin to see some of the dangers associated with the presidency that had no limits to it. That was a kind of boundless conception of the office that was certainly susceptible to abuse. And I think we've seen that abuse, particularly uh, with President Nixon and other presidents as well, even Lyndon Johnson, but certainly with Donald Trump. So I grew up a believer in that progressive vision of an unbounded presidency the notion that, as Woodrow Wilson, the president could be as big a man as he wanted to be. Over time, I've certainly drifted away from that. And again, seeing the examples of Nixon and now closer to home, Trump, I've come to see the dangers associated with that unbounded presidency that Kennedy himself uh, personified. And this idea of the unbounded presidency, we talked a lot Many political scientists talked a lot during the Trump administration with regard to the guardrails of traditions and um, and norms as opposed to actually sort of constraints imposed by the Constitution. And for anybody who studies the presidency, we know that there isn't that much in the Constitution with regard to what the president does or doesn't do. Um, I often ask my students, you know, what is it that the president does on a daily basis? We can look at, you know, Congress and we see them in hearings and on the floor, but they're like, hmm, what does the president do on a daily basis? <laughs> 
And and so I think that this question of sort of the the norms and traditions and the constitutional requirements, you get into some of this in different ways in this book, as well as your previous book that I keep mentioning. <laughs> Um, because you're talking about how presidents sort of comply with and also break those norms. Can you talk about Kennedy in this context? Sure, absolutely. One of the norms that John F. Kennedy broke, for sure, uh, an unwritten, it's not in the formal constitution, but Kennedy was not the choice of party leaders in 1960, and he was determined to circumvent the Democratic Party leadership, in keeping with sort of Woodrow Wilson's belief that party leadership should be circumvented. Um, and Kennedy succeeded in that. And again, he was not the choice of party leaders. It was Lyndon Johnson. It was Adlai Stevenson. It was even perhaps Stuart Symington, a senator from Missouri at the time. Kennedy was sort of down the, the rung there. He was a, still a junior senator from Massachusetts, with something of an absentee record from, from the Senate. Um, and he breaks that mold in a sense. I don't see that as entirely positive. It does seem to me that the old party leaders, the old smoke-filled rooms, at least there was the potential to weed out somebody like a Donald Trump, who was clearly not qualified to hold this important office. So that's a negative tradition I see Kennedy Breaking Now, I do recognize that without, you know, the sort of Kennedy model breaking that tradition, you also don't end up with a Barack Obama. And there are other instances, of, I think, positive individuals who have been able to step forward. But in my view, I would say the danger still slightly, uh, well, maybe even more than slightly, um, outweigh the positive benefits of that system of presidential selection that Kennedy is responsible with others of modifying. Um, on the positive side, I do see Kennedy understanding what I emphasized quite a bit in my previous book, which is the importance of the president as head of state. Uh, I think Kennedy took the pageantry of the presidency quite seriously, at least publicly, um, in that his, his presidential rhetoric, I would argue, appealed to the better angels of our nature, to borrow from Lincoln, and that he and Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, produced some of the more moving, uh, most eloquent, uh, positive affirmations of what America could be. And, and I see Kennedy in that sense in keeping with the best of uh, this kind of informal tradition of American presidential, uh, either written, the written word or public uh, speeches. I, I see Kennedy in the top five in that regard, in terms of being a spokesman for what is, what is potentially great about this nation and about the person who holds that office. And you, in, in the sort of latter part of the book in particular, you do a lot of comparison between Kennedy and Lincoln. Um, and, you know, you and I both experienced Lincoln from Lowenthal and Sigliano. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, and certainly think about Lincoln as not only a particular kind of statesperson, 
but also because of the rhetoric of his many speeches and the import of those. And you are you're sort of making a very similar case, I think, for Kennedy's words in the 20th century um, about not only patriotism, but also the potential for the United States, this idea that the United States is an idea and has the capacity to achieve things as a result of that. Can you explain a little bit about the rhetorical comparison between the two? Sure. I think both Lincoln and Kennedy did believe, as Lincoln was uh, uh, fond of saying, that the United States was the last best hope of mankind. That self-government, the test of self-government, the test of survivability of Republican small our government was in a sense uh, in the hands of the United States. Kennedy believed that as well. Now I do wanna make it clear, and I try this in the book, try to state this clearly in the book. I don't see Kennedy in the same league as Lincoln, uh, but I do see some comparisons as you nicely laid out in terms of the importance they placed on presidential wordsmithing, if you will. Um, and I also see comparisons between Kennedy and Lincoln. They, 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 their presidencies are exactly 100 years apart. And when Kennedy comes into office in 1961, the promises of the, the Civil War amendments have still not been delivered by, by any stretch. Uh, you and I are recording this on Martin Luther King's birthday. I mean, to this day, the promises of, of the Civil War and the Civil Rights uh, amend, uh, Civil War Amendments and of the Civil Rights Movement still have not been delivered upon. Kennedy, 100 years after Lincoln, slowly, cautiously, some would say excessively cautiously, but nonetheless eventually puts the full weight of his presidency behind the civil rights movement that's being led by Dr. King at the time uh, and, and, and the agenda of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and other entities, the NAACP. And Kennedy was criticized then and now for moving cautiously, as I said, but so was Lincoln. And I do see some comparisons in terms of both of these white statesmen trying to bring their fellow white citizens along in the best uh, possible, or I should say, rephrase that, in the most effective way. In other words, Kennedy was facing a Democratic Party that he supposedly controlled, but it was really dominated by a number of Southern barons on these powerful legislative committees. And he had to bring these guys along, and that was no easy task. Um, and so I do see that kind of um, cautious but deliberate approach as there are parallels between Kennedy and Lincoln, again, with the disclaimer that John F. Kennedy is no Lincoln. Yeah, I didn't want to say that you were making that comparison, just that their rhetoric um, is is important, particularly if we think about Kennedy's rhetoric in the 20th century <clears throat> in the middle of the Cold War, as you say, sort of moving the civil rights situation um, 
with regard to entanglements in Vietnam and Cuba and so forth. Um, that I, 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 you know, it, it, oftentimes again, Kennedy's reputation is one of a young whippersnapper. Um, and you know, as you, as you also say, his critics see him as a haircut and good teeth. Um, and certainly not on the same level as Lincoln, but their, their rhetoric still is still with us. I think so, Lily. And I would point your listeners to Kennedy's nationally televised address from June of 1963 on uh, the importance of civil rights and in putting him and his office fully in, in league with the goals of Dr. King. Um, I find that one of the most beautiful, one of the most moving addresses in the history of the American presidency, and certainly one of the more significant addresses by any white political leader in terms of American civil rights. Um, There is this notion out there that uh, Kennedy did not sort of push his legislative agenda. Uh, That's not true. And one of the points I try to make in the book is regarding civil rights in the last four to five months of his life, he really goes all out to push what will become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, I grant you that act ultimately passes, pardon the expression, over Kennedy's dead body, uh, which has a tremendous impact in helping push that through. I'm actually one of the few scholars who've looked at Kennedy who argues he probably would have won that vote anyways. Now, I don't think he would have gotten as significant, as far-reaching a bill as Johnson was able to do, building on Kennedy's martyrdom. Uh, But I do think Kennedy would have succeeded in passing the Civil Rights Act of 64. And I think he deserves credit for that. And you you raise an interesting point. Part of the reason Kennedy pushed the civil rights so uh, with, with so much energy towards the end, granted, is the damage it is doing to America's reputation abroad. He really does see this in part. It is a moral issue to him. It is a human rights issue, but it's also a Cold War issue that's hurting the United States and the so-called third world at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and and one of the one of the um, aspects of the book that I, I found so engaging um, is your own sort of evolution in your thinking about Kennedy that also is sort of layered on top of the way that the rest of the country um, to some degree has understood the Kennedy legacy, the Kennedy history, um, in part because of the tight grip that <clears throat> the Kennedy family had on on a lot of the papers. Um, and, and so, I mean, and the book really goes into like, here's kind of what the story was, here's how it was presented, here's how I think about it. Um, and so, you know, what, what is the truth? Of course, we're in the post-truth world, so whatever. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I really would love for you to take us through the different kind of aspects that you go through in the book, looking at particular incidents, you have the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and so forth, and you've just talked about the civil rights dimensions. Um, but could you talk a little bit about how that 
that historical memory has been sort of cultivated as well? Sure. So, of course, immediately after President Kennedy was killed, there was this national outpouring of grief. First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy goes to great lengths. She's the one who plants the Camelot uh, myth in the minds of Americans. She tells Teddy White at a famous interview within a week of the assassination that her husband's presidency was essentially a kind of Camelot, uh, one brief shining moment in the history of the United States. That's the initial take on the Kennedy years, and it's due in good measure to Mrs. Kennedy's efforts. Um, and by the way, again, I bought into this. I accepted this as, as fact. And part of my transition regarding my own attitude towards Kennedy, President Kennedy, was during my time at the Kennedy Library, I saw things that really disturbed me. And as much as I was a devotee of President Kennedy and the, and the Kennedy family, I was also a devotee of history. And I saw a kind of manipulation of the record that really disturbed me. And so you had favored historians like an Arthur Schlesinger Jr. who were granted carte blanche access to Kennedy's papers, while other historians who might not have been so sympathetic or perhaps, uh, to use a more loaded term, controlled by the family, uh, were denied this access. And you see this particularly glaringly in terms of accounts of the Cuban Missile Crisis, as you mentioned. So you have Ted Sorensen and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. putting a version of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that version was essentially you had a young president who stood up to the warmongers in the Kremlin and also stood up to his own warmongering military. He went eyeball to eyeball with Khrushchev and Kennedy emerges triumphant. So much of that is fiction. And it has really taken decades for historians of a more objective nature uh, to, to overcome that 13 days mythology. And you see this time and again with other issues related to the Kennedy presidency. So uh, you're right, I spend a lot of time in my book, Lily, talking about this kind of distorted history promoted by the family and some of their courtiers. And, uh, you know, I just thought part of the reason for writing this book was, you know, 60 years is long enough for that kind of stuff to persist, that we can look at President Kennedy warts and all. And I came to the conclusion, as you know, having read the book, that even with some fairly considerable warts, there's still quite a bit to admire about this presidency. And and also, I mean, this is where my particular interest comes in. We we have these narrative historical presentations in in film and television of 13 days, a movie of that name, um, The Missiles of October, another movie of that name. Um, and And so not only do we have like sort of somewhat constrained historical record that had sort of dominated our understanding. But it's it's also, you know, in the context of these very heroic presentations of a factual event um, with, you know, really good looking actors playing Kennedy and other people um, <laughs> that then, you know, really sets that into our imaginations as this is how yes. it happened. Yes, um, absolutely. And I, let me point out, Lily, uh, the book, the movie 13 Days is very loosely based on the book 13 Days, 
which was written by Robert Kennedy, I think, with the assistance of Ted Sorensen. Uh, there's been some tremendous work done by an historian by the name of Sheldon Stern, who used to be, he's actually a friend of mine, used to be the historian at the John F. Kennedy Library. And Stern has proven time and again that Robert Kennedy's account of the 13 days was highly fictional. And it was done to sort of promote Robert Kennedy's campaign for the presidency in 1968. So a part of the problem with sort of getting at the real John F. Kennedy is that there was always some Kennedy brother or Kennedy nephew or on a few occasions Kennedy niece running for office that required history to be sort of airbrushed a bit in order to sustain the latest Kennedy political endeavor. And thankfully, I think for the most part, we are now beyond that. And that's part of the reason I think we're finally getting, just in the last 10 to 20 years, a more honest, uh, more, more honest assessment, more honest accounts of John F. Kennedy's presidency. And, and with regard specifically to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I, I want to get back to how how the Kennedy legacy has has, an, has been controlled to impact those with the Kennedy name who run for office. But I wanted to ask you specifically about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know what we what we all think about it historically, um, and what it was that the Kennedys um, tried to sort of move out of our understanding of the missile crisis? Great, great question. What they tried to move out or conceal from our understanding of the missile crisis was some serious concessions made by President Kennedy uh, to, to Khrushchev, to the Kremlin. And these are concessions that President Kennedy recognized at the time could perhaps lead to his impeachment or deny him re-election in 1964. He gave uh, the Kremlin uh, concessions on American missiles in, in Turkey, uh, located on the Soviet border. Uh, he made a no-invasion pledge of Cuba, uh, assuming that the Soviets withdrew their missiles from Cuba. He promised not to pull another Bay of Pigs. These kinds of concessions, had they been known at the time, uh, would have been political dynamite. They were kept concealed until long after President Kennedy's death, long after Robert Kennedy's death. Uh, and again, that's, that's an aspect of the missile crisis that is not appreciated in enough quarters. This, the standard account remains, we won, they backed down, they blinked, this tough president won a major Cold War victory. Kennedy's top priority in the midst of those 13 days, was to vo avoid a nuclear war. It was to avoid World War III. And at times, he was almost a lone voice in the meetings, the so-called XCOM meetings that occurred in the midst of the crisis. He was the one constantly pushing back against the advice of those who were advocating for some type of military strike against Cuba. And, you know, God bless him for that, because I honestly think he was right this situation would have escalated out of control. So I think Kennedy deserves a lot of praise for his handling of the missile crisis, but not for the reason that many Americans to this day still believe is the case. And and that's, again, only, you know, constantly reconfigured by these heroic films 
that yes, interpret that's right <clears throat> that that's we right. interpret exactly it the same right. way yeah um so in in this regard also you you mentioned the way that i mean and this is really fascinating in terms of understanding narrative um the way that the kennedy family has essentially tried to maintain the kennedy legacy within the democratic party and the nation as a whole, so as to provide running room for subsequent Kennedys. Um, Now, obviously, we have the three living brothers, or, you know, the three brothers who would run for office. um, And, and, you know, JFK won the presidency, won the Senate, RFK was in this cabinet and looked like he was likely to do quite well in 68. Um, and then obviously Teddy, Teddy Kennedy was in the Senate for six terms. Oh yeah. From 60, 1962 to 2009. More than six terms. (laughs) One of the longest track records ever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we've seen subsequent Kennedys who, you know, have also died tragically, um, and also have been in office, um, but can you talk about the way that, I mean, this is a fascinating thing to sort of read through your book, the way that the attempts to manage the Kennedy reputation so that others could run for office. Yeah, I mean, I saw it up close and personal. and I don't want to overinflate my role at the Kennedy Library. I was basically the glorified tour guide. I was responsible for people who gave tours through the museum at the library, but I did have an office two doors down from Dave Powers, who was a longtime John F. Kennedy friend and advisor of sorts, um, and was the museum curator at the time I was at the library. And again, I saw the, the, the family would use Powers uh, to keep the lid on archival material that might be embarrassing to the president and might cause harm to whatever Kennedy campaign was occurring at the time. And this would have been in the 1980s. Um, it was particularly egregious, not to keep coming back to the missile crisis, but Robert Kennedy was the point man for the effort uh, called Operation Mongoose, which was designed to be blunt, eliminate, kill Fidel Castro, overturn the communist government there and replace it with a more pro-American regime. Bobby oversaw that operation, I'm sure at President Kennedy's best. This didn't happen by accident. And Robert Kennedy's family sat on a number of materials related to Operation Mongoose well into this century, which is ridiculous considering that a half a century or so had passed um, with the missile crisis in, what, 2012. So um, that's just one very specific example where they sat on these material. But I would add to it, there was also attempts over the decades to, I think, make President Kennedy, to, to sort of transform President Kennedy into more of a liberal, perhaps, than he actually was. In other words, to make John F. Kennedy, to make the John F. Kennedy of 1982 or 92 or 02 a Democrat of that time, 
And, you know, I'm struggling here to think of a specific example, but there was always this desire to sort of update him. And what that did is it required people who were part of this family political operation and even some of their friends in the media and historical or scholarly community to also sort of update Kennedy's record or downplay some of his more hawkish actions, perhaps uh, in Vietnam or dealing with the Soviets or whatever. Um, it's just a really interesting case of manipulating the record, of concealing records, but also subtly manipulating the record to present a, de a deceased political figure as somebody who could be politically viable, you know, 40 years later. And, you know, we, we see that sometimes these days also with regard to Reagan um, sure. And, sure. And, and, you know, sort of the the way that Reagan is often talked about uh, from the 80s and applying it to the Republican Party now. Nice. Um, Very nice. And, yeah. and, you know, I, I, I see the sort of hagiography in both both those cases um, to yeah. sort of say, like, this this is what Kennedy would want. This is what Reagan would want. And and if we look at the actual record, it's maybe not that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. You also you also detail in the book and and, you know, now we've we've known some of these historical components for a while with regard to Kennedy's rather active libido, um, as well as his many health ailments mm. that were, as you say, you talk about Kennedy's relationship with the press, not only his relationship, but people around him's relationship with regard to the press um, and, and that, you know, there were, there were lots of efforts essentially not to expose a lot of these things at the time. And we didn't have quite the investigative <clears throat> news force in the sixties that we had post Watergate. Um, but, you know, was that part of what was kind of obscured in the library as well? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, the, in terms of Kennedy's overactive libido, um, great efforts were made to 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 conceal that by by the family over the decades. Now, look, part of it I sort of understand in that President Kennedy's wife and its two children at the time were still alive. I mean, there are it seems to me some occasions where family concerns perhaps need to be weighed in their added into the equation. But in the Kennedy case, I think it was very much uh, over the top. And um, the first real revelation of Kennedy's extramarital affairs comes out in the mid-70s during the church committee hearings, when it turns out, Senator Frank Church's hearings on the CIA and the FBI, it turns out President Kennedy was sleeping with a woman who was also sleeping with a mafia boss. Uh, Santos uh, Traficante, excuse me, Sam Giancana in Chicago. Um, and that was kind of an explosive revelation, to say the least. Uh, and it does show you a kind of recklessness in Kennedy's behavior, no question about it, uh, as president. But the attempt to keep the lid on both his uh, sexual behavior and his many health issues um, you know, persisted for decades. He did suffer from Addison's disease, uh, which in the 1950s was occasionally fatal. 
Um, and in the 1960 campaign, the Kennedy campaign flat out denied that Kennedy had Addison's disease. It really wasn't until Robert Dalek's work, uh, Dalek wrote a book called An Unfinished Life, The Presidency of John F. Kennedy, and Dalek was given access to all of Kennedy's health records. That's where we found out not only was he suffering from Addison's disease, but he had an endless array of health issues, including a degenerative back issue that was remarkably painful. Now, I have to give Dalek credit while he exposes all these health uh, issues of Kennedy's. He also, I think, does a nice job of portraying the fact that Kennedy, for all of his other personal flaws, never complained about this kind of stuff. And this was a guy who really was in intense pain for much of his life. But back to your question, no question, these health questions, these uh, extramarital affairs, great efforts were made to conceal them by the family. Now, in fairness to the media at the time, I would argue not just with Kennedy, but with other political figures, there was a kind of high wall of separation between what the media considered to be personal matters and public matters. That doesn't excuse Kennedy's reckless behavior, uh, but it does perhaps take the media off the hook a bit in that they did tend to follow or obey this kind of high wall of separation. And, and so I wanted to bring you back to some degree to the broader thesis of the book. Um, so I know of your very, very strong respect for, say, Thomas Jefferson and um, <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt <laughs> and, and, and also uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, <laughs> And having having read the lost soul of the American presidency, um, and for a stretch of time, you kind of put Kennedy in that that group of uh, I I don't want to say it this way, but I don't know how else to say it of kind of overrated presidents. Um, and again, you know, being in the presidency for four terms or elected for four terms and being in there, there's no way that that presidency of Franklin Roosevelt can can be compared to any other presidency. Um, and, you know, Thomas Jefferson's, the romantic notion of Thomas Jefferson that is embedded in our narrative about him is also very hard to separate from his presidency, as I talk about often with my students. Um, but you've sort of reconsidered Kennedy um, and, and to some degree moved him out of, of sort of being an overrated. That's, that's very fair. And that's a terrific question. Um, I would still argue that Kennedy's most egregious impact on the office and on the American body politic was overselling the presidency, was that uh, sustaining that boundless, limitless presidency. But uh, you're absolutely right. I have changed my take on Kennedy. Um, uh, you know, a good part of it is due to living through, the, I'll be blunt, living through the Trump years. And I do get into this in the book. Um, you know, I see John F. Kennedy as appealing to our better angels uh, in comparison to President Trump. Um, I see him, it again, at least publicly, not so much privately, for sure, uh, conducting himself as a dignified head of state. I do see him as a Cold War president who sort of laid out in very stark and moving terms the differences between a totalitarian regime 
like the Soviet Union and a republic, albeit flawed, uh, like ours. Uh, so yeah, I've I've you know come to terms with John F. Kennedy in a way that even ten years ago I probably would not have been been comfortable with. And again, part of that is just living through the Trump experience, seeing again. I'll try to be very upfront here. A lot of scholars and academics whose views on the presidency and on the Constitution I once admired. I, I just can't admire anymore because they've gone either silent when it comes to Trump or in some cases even embraced Trumpism. And what that did was force me to re-examine a number of my political beliefs. And hopefully folks who read this book might be prompted uh, to do the same. That's part of the reason I wrote this book. And and I think that comes through. I mean, that's why I find it a kind of intimate book, um, because you you talk not only about Kennedy, but also about your thinking about Kennedy and your thinking about the presidency and trying to contextualize him because he was contextualized, as you put him in the law soul of the American presidency, because you go through all the presidents. Um, and, and whereas in this book, you sort of pull him out, but you you still contextualize him that I found to be really useful in thinking not only about Kennedy, but about the presidency. Um, And I think it's an interesting sort of coda on the Trump administration because it does sort of take us to look through our memories um, and our our, our intellectual understandings of the role of the president. Um, And I think you pull out the, the rhetoric in particular that we often, you know, acknowledge John F. Kennedy, you know, great speeches, um, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, what did they actually say? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Lily, you made me think about, I mean, a couple of things I admired about President Kennedy. <clears throat> he really did appreciate the role of the president as a unifying figure. And I know I've repeated this ad nauseum throughout our talk today, but I do think he did try to appeal to our better angels, try to pull the country together. He was not a president who was a divider. And we've had particularly a recent president who harped on divisions for his own political benefit. Kennedy was, I don't see Kennedy as a demagogue. And um, if you go back and read or listen to some of Kennedy's speeches, they're, they're quite literate. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a use of language that I'm not sure could succeed today. And so, but again, I admire the fact that he tried to appeal to what would bring Americans together. And I also admire the fact, and this is interesting in light of what happens with his assassination, he rejected conspiracy theories. He really, while he was capable of pulling at people's emotions, no question, I think he did try to appeal to people's reason. And uh, he didn't make this a top priority. But for instance, in his day, one of the main conspiracy theories on the far right, or not even the far right, just the right, uh, was fluoridation. And the fact that our water was being poisoned by, you know, communist operatives or whatever. Um, He actually condemned that in a speech in 1961. So he's a president who tries to put the lid on conspiracy theories. And his very final speech that he would have delivered 
at the Dallas Trade Mart had he not been murdered. He actually appeals to, uh, <clears throat> again, the reason of the American public and urges them to turn away from those who would appeal to their, you know, to their fears and who promote conspiracy theories. That's the John F. Kennedy admire. I admire. That's the John F. Kennedy I've reconsidered. So now that you have set the record straight on Kennedy, um, which is no mean feat, <laughs> what are you working on now, Steve? Well, I'm taking a bit of a break, but I am considering, <clears throat> excuse me, writing something on uh, conspiracies and the American presidency or the extent to which presidents circulate conspiracy theories. Uh, that came up in my previous book, as you know. Uh, it's a little bit of a feature in my current book, uh, but I think there's perhaps more work to be done there on how presidents deal with or, you know, hopefully try to damp down conspiracy theories. But we've had some who I think see it as their role to promote these theories, and they do so, again, partly to benefit themselves. So I think at this time, that's going to be my next one, Lily. Okay. So presidential conspiracy mongers or presidential conspiracy uh, um, opponents. I look forward to reading it. That sounds oh, fun. Thank you. <laughs> I have a feeling there's some action going on in the like early 1800s around that. Yeah, yes, there is. <laughs> Barbary there pirates. Is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Hamilton as a British agent. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Steve, um, to talk about Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy, uh, published in 2022 by the University Press of Kansas. I always love to send people to brick and mortar stores. If you've got one, give it a shout out. Uh, well, yeah, unfortunately, it's part of a large chain, but I'm happy to see any sort of brick and mortar stores. Uh, there's one nearby me at Barnes and Noble, a couple towns over in uh, Walpole, Massachusetts. So that's my favorite. All right. And if not, people can head over to the University Press of Kansas to pick this book up. Um, it's it's a, a lovely read. Um, and I appreciate you talking to me about it today, Steve. Thank you, Lily. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.